welcome uh, to our uh, Wednesday noon luncheon today. Thank you for coming. We're uh, glad you're here. Man, I had to rush through that meal, and that was a good one. I wish I could have said <laughs> What is on that fish? I don't know. That was, uh, that was really good. I, li- I like that. So, uh, John Kinzer was listed as being uh, uh, preaching today, but a- as I mentioned last week, and as you know, uh, his, his, his mother-in-law, Pat's mother in Michigan, is very near death and, and really <laughs> ready and desirous of such. So John came back, drove the 850 miles back Saturday, got here Saturday night, and just had to leave again, I think, just, just a few minutes ago because it looks like things are near the end. So John's to be commended for being able to drive 850 miles uh, at the drop of a hat and then, of course, in both directions. But we're glad you're here, uh, and I'd like you to turn to a psalm, and then I'll lead us in prayer. But if you'd open a Bible, if you wouldn't mind, to Psalm 32, almost right in the very middle of your your book, Psalm 32. And I'll have a prayer, and then we will... uh, we will look at this together for a few moments. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we give you thanks today for, for the way you sustain us with such blessings as food and, and health, clothes, cars, shelter, and you truly and abundantly shower those blessings down upon us. And we pause now to thank you for that and to express our recognition of our complete dependence upon you. We also have spiritual needs, even as Christ said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So as we come to your word now, we ask you to nourish our hungry souls, that you'd uh, grow us up in Christ, that you'd give us nourishment, that we might serve you and as we serve others, as we, as we extend your kingdom. And uh, we do pray for John and Pat and their care for so many others in this room at times, and ask now your continued blessing on them at this uh, difficult season as Pat's mom is so eager to be with you, and as it looks like it's toward the end. ask you to bless them with funeral arrangements and family travel and so forth, and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 32. Every Sunday uh, is called the Lord's Day. That's what in the New Testament you find believers calling it, and so if you remember, the Jewish Sabbath was the last day of the week, what we call Saturday. And then in New Testament times, believers, after the resurrection, began to gather. They would assemble. That's the word, ecclesia, assembly. We get the term ecclesiastical that refers to church-related things. They would assemble on the first day of the week. And some would say, uh, if you're not to be offensive, if there are any Seventh-day Adventist brethren here among us, but... That's been a major thing through church history is a day of worship for Christians now, the last day of the week, the old Jewish Sabbath, or the first day of the week, and Seventh-day Adventists would say it's the last day of the week, and that it was Roman Emperor Constantine who changed it in uh, 300-and-something A.D., that by decree he changed it to the first day of the week. But when you look, I dispute that, as as most uh, church historians do, that, that it was already changed in the New Testament because of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, He rose on the first day of the week. And so now we gather on the Lord's Day each week in corporate worship to celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Not Easter. I'm not only Easter. Every Sunday, in the essence of its meaning, 
every time we gather should be for the purpose of celebrating the resurrection. Just like, so in a sense, every uh, Lord's Day is an Easter Sunday in, in its true meaning. Someday he'll come back and he'll take us to be with him and then we will be with him forever in the presence of the Lord through his life and death and resurrection. That, that's a fact of the resurrection. Uh, sometimes it's hard to believe the implications of that resurrection because it proves there is life after death. Uh, if you're wondering whether Christianity is true, uh, study the resurrection. You remember, y'all ever listen to J. Vernon McGee? I mean, he died long ago, but you can still hear him on the radio. A woman wrote to him and said, Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned. He fainted on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? J. Vernon McGee, as only he could, wrote back, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, and then see what happens. Well, the Bible says Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day. He's laid in a borrowed tomb. That's kind of interesting. Why do you borrow something? Because you plan to give it back. You only need it for a little while. Um, it proved Jesus was who he claimed to be, and it proved what he taught that, that we can be forgiven of sins. And that's very important as we come to Psalm 32. Because Jesus used miracles to substantiate what he said. You know, when he said, does the Son of Man have authority on earth to forgive sins, he healed a paralyzed man to make the point. Of course, the greatest miracle that he did was his resurrection. His resurrection. Now, King David knew about God's forgiveness. And that's what we have in Psalm 32. We'll just look at a few of the verses together. It begins with an expression of joy. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So it's like he begins with it on a happy note. There's joy in this. This is a day of rejoicing. I rejoice in the fact of the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now, if you know the name Augustine, about 1,600 years ago or so, he lived. He was a young man. He was born into a family where his mother was a Christian. His father was not. He was very much a pagan. The father was. And Augustine tried to find peace in his life. And he lived a life of very worldly pleasure. He would have been very much at ease here in our day in a city like New York, or anywhere else for that matter. He just did what he wanted to do. He, he tried out, he was a philosopher and thinker. He tried out pagan religions. He tried the university world, the world of academia. He tried logic. At age 32, he, he was converted. He became a Christian. And his books, one called Confessions and the other, The City of God, they've really been bestsellers for over 1,500 years. If you were to pick up either of those, you will find them amazingly readable. I'm afraid that if you see the name Augustine, or if you're from Florida, Augustine, <laughs> then you will say, ooh, that looks too uh, cumbersome to read. Surprise yourself, pick one of them up and just read a paragraph or two. And I think you'll see why these things have been read through the centuries. Well, on his deathbed, he lived to be age 76, 
which was a long time at that time in history. And like many people then, he, he knew he probably wasn't getting up from that bed. So he had a psalm written on a sheet of paper and, and attached to a wall where he could look at it every day. Psalm 32, what we're looking at right now. Now here's the setting. Uh, you know of King David, his sin against <coughs> Uriah, the, wife, uh, the husband of, uh, of Bathsheba, that, whom he had committed adultery, and the whole fiasco there with that. Nathan, the prophet, is sent by the Lord to David, tells him the story of this, remember the family with the little lamb. Rich guy wants, you know, takes their little loved lamb. You know the whole thing. And Nathan delivers this message to David, and David is a king who's the ultimate judge in that day. He says, surely this man must be punished who took this lamb away from this family, this only lamb that they had. And Nathan rebukes him as God has sent him to do, saying, David, you're the man. And David repents. And now this is probably months or years later. And he's thinking back, and he's reflecting on what had happened to him. We know that Psalm 51 is his words of confession of his sin, but this now is later than that, and he's reflecting on what had happened to him in his guilt, in his transgression, in his forgiveness. And so it's kind of, it's very biographical. And he's thinking back, and as he thinks about it, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, and he seems more appreciative now of what he has than before. You ever been that way where you gave up something that you came to hold in low regard, and then you, you look back and you thought, boy, was that not a mistake? I knew a professor at the University of Arkansas. I was a campus minister there for four years, and he was very outspoken on, he, he was from another state, and he was outspoken about all the problems of living where we were living in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and at the, and his position at the University of Arkansas. So he took a position and moved his family to Hawaii. Now, if you read about Hawaii, has anyone here ever lived in Hawaii? Well, it's well known that the culture, especially in the high schools, is horrendous. Drug addiction, if you think we have problems, even in Bibb County, I've, it, this has been known, I've known this for 20 years, that Hawaii is just terrible, terrible. Well, I think, I don't know what he expected, but they moved out there. About two years later, I see him, and he'd moved back to Fayetteville, and he had taken a much lesser position than he had left at another school. He wasn't even at the university anymore. And you talk about a person whose tune had changed, of what he had thought was so uh, undesirable that he gave up, and then he moved somewhere else, and he said, what in the world have I done? This is far worse than I left. And then he came back and was very appreciative, even for a much lower position, but to get his children back uh, here. Well, that's what's happened. David's looking back, and he realized what he had lost in his sin and how much in gaining forgiveness God had blessed him. He uses two words, transgression and sin. And we find that in the Bible that when we uh, violate God's law, you, you find different terms, but those are the two main terms. Let me, and they each kind of have a different angle. Transgression, transgression means to trespass. 
It means to go where you're not supposed to go. Uh, it's to go up to a locked door, so to speak, and cut the lock and go in. And some activity that God has said, don't, he's put a fence around it, it like the Ten Commandments, you know, no, uh, no coveting, no uh, adultery, no murder. And, and it's to climb the fence, transgression, trespasses, to climb the fence that says no trespassing. And so the concept is that God has put, put limits on our, our behavior and he's made it quite clear of what those expectations and limits are and we're to operate within those limits. And we're to do it for our own good and for the good of the culture, the good of society. And so every time you or I step over the God-given limits, we transgress. That's the, con- that's the term there, we trespass. Now the word sin, in verse 1, whose sin is covered... That means to miss the mark. And so you see a target, like a bullseye, and you throw a spear at it, to use biblical terminology, and you, if you missed it, you would say, I sinned. I missed the mark. This means not doing what we ought to do. We miss God's standard. And so the Bible says we're, we're all sinners. But David, as he thinks about that, blessed, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, he's rejoicing in the fact of forgiveness. That's what this is about, just the concept of forgiveness, the personal application of forgiveness. And now he begins to recount and remember how he felt when he was apart from God uh, in, in an unrepentant state, when he had lost this sense of closeness to God. He remembers how he feels. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For when I kept silent, meaning about his sin, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So we see here the, the effects of guilt. Can we relate to this? Can you relate to this? Guilt affects our emotions. It may be a paranoid view of life. It may be, it can affect us with depression or helplessness or always being self-justifying. He felt that. Uh, and he, there's physical. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There's anguish. There's stress often that guilt brings. You ever feel that way with unconfessed sin? Even as a youngster? I can remember doing something and knowing it was wrong. There was no question about whether it was wrong, but not knowing what to do, not knowing how to get out of it, trying to cover it up. And then you begin to lie, and then you have to lie about the lies, and then you go worse and worse, and there's sick feeling and knowing something is wrong. There's a proverb, and it's so true. The way of transgressors is hard. (laughs) You think it's hard to live a life of obedience? Live a life of disobedience. I mean, that takes some effort. To try to cover up, and <laughs> I was talking to one of the moms here in the church one time at a sporting event, and we were all parents standing out there, and we were talking about a mutual friend who had kind of lived a double life and left his wife for another and all this and lied about it forever, and she made the comment to me, and she's pretty brazen and pretty straightforward, and she said, who has got that much energy? <laughs> I knew what she meant. Who's got that much energy to cover up? you know, and live that way. Uh, what are the solutions today? Well, we, can, we find these in the Bible. We certainly find them in real life. One is just to deny my sin or to not deny my guilt. I didn't do it, as he said, to keep silent about it. Uh, rationalize, we find that right there with the first sin. 
uh, I'm, I'm sorry, blame shift. You know, well, Adam, <laughs> it's kind of like a line. God comes to Adam and he says, well, the woman, she made me do it. And then she turns and says, well, the serpent made me do it. <laughs> the serpent, nobody, nobody left. You remember that that was it. So blame shifting right down that way. Rationalize. Yeah, I did it, but it wasn't wrong. Or uh, it didn't hurt anybody, or it's nothing by comparison with some other major thing. Well, all of these approaches just focus on the feelings and on the symptoms and not the cause. As one said, they focus on the fruit and not the root. And as a person who counsels others to some degree as a pastor, uh, a lot of us look for uh, help with the symptoms Hi, you know, like what David said, I feel awful, I'm under stress, I, I mean, I'm, I, I just I feel paranoid. Uh, help me not feel that way. And, and so it would be like going to a doctor and saying, I've got a terrible pain in my elbow, terrible pain. Can you help me? And they say, well, well here's some painkillers. Now, if, if you're really serious, they say, what is causing this? Let's get to the root of it. I just don't want to deal with the symptom. Let's deal with the root. Well, David, now, as he recounts it, he dealt with the root. He could have probably found ways, maybe taken a vacation, a few days off, or I'm not being sarcastic about that, but he could have just dealt, said, you know, I need some time away. I'm feeling under stress here. Uh, and, and not gotten to the root of why he was feeling that way. And so he deals with it, and we find him dealing with it in verse 5. Okay, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, often we don't think about how long David was in a very hardened state against God. He committed adultery with Bathsheba here, and you remember when he repents? What has happened before he repents when Nathan comes to it? The baby's born. So at least nine months, nine months have he has been very, very far from God. And so the, the baby's born, and that's when Nathan comes to him. God sends Nathan to him, Nathan the prophet. So David here, he doesn't, at this point, he doesn't blame others. Uh, even when Nathan says, you're the man, David, you're the one in this story that, that took this lamb from this other family that violated God's law. So he goes to the root. He confesses his sin. The word confess means to agree with. That's it. To, it, it. It's not even saying you're sorry. It's saying, I agree that what I did was wrong. It is to attest to the truth. It is to acknowledge. I acknowledge my sin to you. The most, someone has said the most difficult part of confession is not with God, it's with ourselves. Think about it. God gives all these offers to forgive our sins when we confess. So not confessing, not having forgiven sins, all rests with us. Totally. That's the human responsibility. So I have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, am I willing to admit I'm wrong? Am I willing to admit I've transgressed? Am I willing to admit I've missed the mark, I've sinned? And so it matters to God that we confess our sins. So Two of the best-known invitations to do that, one from Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So have you confessed your sins to the Lord? As a brand brand new Christian, as a junior high student, 
I was uh, nurtured through the ministry of what was called at that time Campus Crusade for Christ. It, it was in my hometown in Alabama and involved in, my, my school, in our schools. And so I, I was introduced to a lot of their teachings, and one was about confessing your sins. And they had a little exercise that they recommended doing that I still do occasionally, this many years later. Some staff member should have gotten a bonus because at least one thing he did stuck. <laughs> he trained me. Here's what it is. And it's very basic. Very basic. Uh, you just take a blank sheet of paper, and in, in a time of prayer, you just, in, in the area of confession, just write down every known sin I could think of. Knowing no one else will see it except me and God, it's very specific. I wouldn't want anybody else to see it. And so I would just take this, and I, take, and I just start every sin. And it's not just trying to be morbidly introspective. But I'm saying, Lord, as I come to this time of confession, and I might spend three or four minutes writing down areas of, uh, that I realize, and of course I know from Psalms it's only a partial list because so many of the sins we commit we're not even aware of. So I write that down, and then, and they taught me to do this, so I still do it. I take 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you take your list, and I take a pen and put 1 John 1, 9. And then take the piece of paper and tear it up. And I tear it into mighty tiny pieces. <laughs> and if I wasn't afraid of the alarm going off, I'd set it on fire. And i throw it away. Now, uh, you may say, well, why go to that much trouble? There's something about that for me. It's visual. It's physical. I know it's like, it li- it's like it makes it a little more real. Now, I know there's a danger. That could sound like a gimmick to somebody. I mean, you can confess your sins and not need to write them down and not need to share up the, the, tear up the sheet of paper. But for me, it's been helpful. Look at God's response at the latter part of verse 5. I will confess my sins to the Lord, I said, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the forgiveness is final. The forgiveness is total. The forgiveness is complete. He just says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He doesn't say you just forgave some of them or you just did it for a temporal, you know, small amount of time. It's total. That takes a lot also. To say, I trust your forgiveness, Lord, and I'm going to stand on it. I'm not going to keep beating myself up every day or doing some kind of penance in my attitude. But trusting, they are forgiven right now. Paul Turnier was called the best-known Christian physician of the 20th century. Uh, He wrote many, many books. He was from Switzerland. He died in 1986. And in one of his books entitled Guilt and Grace, he wrote this about, for, about confession and people's symptoms and how confession helped them with physical symptoms, like of illness. And he wrote, what astonished me is the prodigious effect a real confession can have. Very often it is not only the decisive religious experience of freedom from guilt, but the sudden cure of the physical or psychological illness. Sometimes in less than an hour, there occurs in a patient I am seeing for the first time and to whom I have spoken but a few words, a release from psychological tension which I should have been proud to obtain after months of therapy. Now, this was a medical doctor, and he wasn't a quack, but he was talking about the spiritual condition of someone that's having physical implications. 
How did David know when he was forgiven? Well, we know not from this psalm, but from elsewhere. God gave him a visual aid, and that was the Day of Atonement. That was a scapegoat. You remember in the, uh, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, we, we find the description of the Day of Atonement and what the priest was to do to forgive sins. And there's this annual ritual that God gave that the priest was to offer the, the lamb, the unblemished lamb, slit its throat after he'd confessed the sins of the people. He put his hands on the head of that, that, that lamb, and it would die. And then he had these specific instructions with what he was to do with the blood and sprinkling those on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place there in the tabernacle in the tent of meeting. And then he would come out, and you remember they had a goat. And the goat was to be released, and it would walk off into the wilderness. Speak to me. What was the name of that goat? Scapegoat. We still use the term. Basketball team loses. The coach is a scapegoat. The CEO fires the CFO for carrying out what he was told to do by the CEO, so to speak, generalized. But we understand the the guilt bearer, the one who the guilt is placed upon, the innocent one on whom the the guilt is placed upon. David knew that. So, So David had this visual aid. He knew about forgiveness. Since Christ came, we don't have scapegoats. We, we don't need scapegoats because he became the sin bearer. He was separated from the Father because of our sins. He dies and rose again. Two minutes. Sorry. I've got a glare here, so I have to be at a certain angle to see the clock. And so if you see me leaning this way, I don't know what time it is. But I just lean the other and I see it. Last point. What difference does forgiveness make? The gospel tells us Christ has died for sins. He has been the scapegoat. Now it's just a matter of trusting in what he has done, of receiving him. And it sounds so simple. There's something in our nature that wants to add something. It cannot be that simple. It cannot be a matter of believing and receiving. I've read that when Betty Crocker was putting, the company was putting out cake mixes in the very beginning, and don't tell me if you were there when they first came out or you would have terribly dated yourself. But they had a terrible time selling those because the, the directions only said, add water. <laughs> and they found that no one was buying the mix, or not enough were buying it. So after lots of money was spent on research to find out why people were not buying better Betty Crocker cake mix, it came back. The answer, it seems too easy to people. When they see adding only water, they think it certainly can't be that good if that's all you add. So they changed the instructions, the directions. Add water and one egg. For no other reason than what I just told you, and people started buying it. There's something about us that wants to complicate the whole thing of forgiveness. That I've got to do something. I've got to add penance. And there's certainly a place for restitution and reconciliation. That's not what I'm saying. But in order to get forgiveness, I must, I must make myself miserable for a year. I must make a deal with God to give up something I really like, and then maybe, maybe that ogre in the sky will let me off the hook, you know. And yet when Christ hung on the cross, it was all done, and we have to now do, all we have to do is accept him. Everybody in this room probably has some problems you can't solve, and you will carry those to the grave. Um, But you can do something about this. If you're at odds with God, 
if you've got unconfessed sin, you've got unrepented of sin, and you're hard in your heart, if you're not a believer and you haven't received his forgiveness, you can do something about that. You can receive that solution right now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for forgiveness offered through Christ, and it's full, and it's final, and it's free. Uh, Help us to be like David and take seriously our condition if we are far from you. Help us not to blame shift or rationalize or ignore um, or deny. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.